Hello and welcome to Render, the harm reduction podcast. I'm Andrea Brunet, author of one of the Hillbilly Drug Baby books and a former journalist. What I love is lifting up the voices of others. This podcast gives life to those struggling with the opioid crisis in Appalachia. You'll hear voices of insight, pain, suffering, and redemption. You don't have to have read the Hillbilly Drug Baby books to enjoy the podcast. You'll hear interviews with Appalachia's opioid warriors, as well as those who are planting seeds of hope. In this episode, you'll hear from a county commissioner who's been working at ground zero of the addiction crisis for 20 years. A Republican, he says, Republican politics can be a nightmare when it comes to committing resources and helping people. Plus, he'll explain why he got kicked off the local board of health. I'll also touch on aspects of the culture with Chris Giles, a lawyer, musician, and Appalachian native. First, we'll start with one of the shortest poems by Jesse Ray Lewis. Here it's read by Daniel Eddie Williams from the audiobook. It's titled Irony of Childhood. <laughs> I sold drugs to my dad thinking, I'm making money. But later, I found out he was paying me with money he got from the government to take care of me. That little poem tells a story with a great economy of words. Jesse Ray was 19 years old when he wrote those lines, which are included in the book Hillbilly Drug Baby, The Poems. Hillbilly Drug Baby, The Story is my book about Jesse Ray and his struggles as an aged-out foster child who'd made his way to Bluefield, West Virginia. Let's bring in lawyer and musician Chris Giles. Hey, Chris. Good morning. So, Chris, did that poem move you? Yes, it jumped up, hit me on the back of the head like I was in the way. <laughs> How did that make you feel? And wasn't he just amazingly observant? Well, I felt betrayed for him. He noticed this problem, this incredible, twisted, sort of ironic thing. This whole thing has a, a special taint to it that you didn't recognize before. You know, that poem is just 31 words, and he went right to the heart of it. And it's more than just personal. I think he says something about the society and the environment that he lived in. Kids, I remember like when we were growing up, when something would happen that was sort of exciting and, and kind of scary way, like, what is that? What happened? And then somebody would say something like that, that a reach and a power that was far beyond their experience and their age. So you weren't surprised that someone so young realized that he'd been duped and then wrote about it. Seems like there's a listening ear that kicks in early in this region. That's one of the things I always found so so intriguing here. You listen to your neighborhood, you listen to your, your community and the people around you, the families. As you grow up, go to school, go to church, go to picnics, go to the amusement park, whatever, as you live your life. People say these profound philosophical excerpts that just kind of pop right in. Not to make too many sweeping generalizations, but it sounds like you're saying kids don't hold back, at least not about speaking their truth. Where I'm from, we just took it for granted that was what people said. Here, I think in Appalachia, to openly say what you saw, even if it was not something you saw with your eyes, but something you perceived, was expected of you, your opinion. Your, your notion, like, well, I see this. Some friends of mine and I that were the same age, we all came up together. One of the things that we are all taught above all else to think for yourself. At the same time, when Jesse Ray wrote about his father, and his father was a recurring subject, 
he seemed to be reticent to share with the world what was happening in their in their home. One of the things I think we're prone to do here, like what this very circumstance is, is that you know it, but you better not say anything about it. Go be, a, yes, go be hell to pay. Yeah, yeah, and there was always hell to pay with his father. And later on, the gang, of course, you definitely did not even think about going to the authorities with anything. You might say something to somebody like, you know, that ain't quite right. But that's as far as you go. I can attest, Jesse Ray was acutely aware of the code of silence, which he made clear to me when I was encouraging him to write. We had to get past that. There's sort of a, a little mantra about living here. And, and, and you, you, you take it to heart and it's around you all the time. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't snitch and mind your own business. That's how you get along in Appalachia. Even if you're an outsider, you let the people know that you are aware of what's happening and not going to be judgmental about it. And look, I know what you're doing here and I don't approve or disapprove. Of course, you know, by the fact saying it, they know that there's a bit of disapproval. It's very much a contextual and circumstantial language. One of the things that makes the poem so effective for me is that he lays the scenario out, but without a lot of judgment. He took no action, and he certainly didn't turn his dad in. Just guessing that this is our way. You tell what you found, but you don't make a judgment, especially when it's new or newer. Man, this is wrong. But you kind of take a while to, uh, to process it. It has to cook for a little while in your own mind. That's one of the things I think Appalachian people don't like doing at all is making matters any worse. That's why they're a bit more reserved about talking about these things other than the factual sort of hit you over the head with the stick kind of fact. Wow, I'm making money off my dad by selling him drugs with money he was supposed to be using to take care of me. Well, you know, he didn't say, I hate my father. He didn't say anything like that. He didn't say that was despicable. He ought to be put in jail. He just pointed out, wow, here's the wrong. There's five rules for living in Appalachia that you laid out, especially the mind your own business part. Let me apologize again for the stereotype, but it makes me think of moonshine. Sure. I mean, well, you grow up with the notion of moonshine here. I mean, it's not like everyone says, oh, when you turn 18, you get to go out and make your first steal. No, that's not it at all. But you're aware of it. And you know, as a child, at least, you know, of course, I'm 61. As a child, you know, there were certain places you just didn't go messing around because, look, they want to be left alone. Leave them alone. Don't be dumb. Leave them alone. Mind your own business. Leave them alone. Nobody's going to hurt you. Just leave them be. And I've heard that so many times in my life. I followed it. I'll leave them alone. It's none of my business. <laughs> it had to take some courage on Jesse Ray's part to snitch on his father, if only in that poem. Yeah, it's not good to make certain disturbances. We're sort of taught as children that there's no reason to make disturbances unless you have to or it's, you've been told that you should. Most of the time, those ideas about being minding your own business in Appalachia it's just a smart idea. Just You don't have to raise issues every time you go around the corner. But if you decide to take a stand, I'm not going to tolerate this. Well, then you go ahead and violate one of the big five. Poetry was definitely an outlet for Jesse Ray. He had suffered abuse. He was immersed in drug culture, literally, while still in the womb. He once told me that writing was the only thing that helped him survive. He was really expressing himself because these things are all around him and he's not really sure what to do about them. They're extra, extra wrong. I'm just glad he did ultimately feel comfortable enough to go public. 
By the way, we should really talk about moonshine one of these days, especially if you did see a thing or two while you were growing up. Meantime, let's hear one of your guitar riffs and move on to our quick share. What have you got for us, Chris? This may sound a little corny, but it really works for me because I see it happen a lot. Especially, you know, when we read that piece of the poem there about Jesse's father and the money, you know, that was being misspent. I'm sure you've heard of the musician artist Stevie Wonder. Well, you remember his old song, Superstition? When you believe oh, in yeah. a thing you don't understand, you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. Mm-hmm. When you hear that, like what Jesse Ray is, those just couple of lines. Well, here I was doing so well with money my father was supposed to be giving me anyway. He believed in a thing he didn't mm-hmm. understand. Mm. And he suffered. It's always a good reminder to go back and listen to Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. My quick share is the Elizabeth Cat book, What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. She wrote it as a sort of rebuttal to the bestseller Hillbilly Elegy, which created a lot of resentment in the region because people took it to say it was blaming people for their own poverty, addiction, and crime. In addition to her own observations, she has created a wonderful resource, a list of books on history, culture, politics, race, class, families, and more. A great way to learn about the region. I highly recommend it. Greg Puckett is one of Appalachia's opioid warriors. In Princeton, West Virginia, he leads the nonprofit agency Community Connections, and he's won awards for his work on the Mercer County Commission, where he served for six years, including representing West Virginia on a nationwide board advising the Biden-Harris administration. He talks about how sometimes politics gets in the way of helping people and why it's crucial to stop stigmatizing people with addictions. Greg, you have a long history of working on this problem, especially with young people. How did you get started? You know, it came at the time of where OxyContin had really started growing the addiction cycles in Appalachia, truly. You know, that product was released in 97, 98. It's now been proven that those were lies, that, you know, it was not an addictive, addictive substance. You mean they said, the company said it was not an addictive substance, and, and that was a lie? That is a lie. That is correct. Uh, as we know, uh, it is a very addictive substance, and opioids itself, um, it, it just truly exploded, especially in Appalachia, because I think it was direct targeted by the marketing companies. They knew where their product line was, and they knew what, what money they were going to make. You're saying Appalachia was especially vulnerable to this. It, we don't have a drug problem. We have an addiction problem. And when you have a society of addiction, it doesn't matter what the drug is. But we've been dealing with that for generations. I mean, they took the script from the tobacco companies, uh, where all the lies that came out among that for the last how many decades. We've got to be able to say, okay, how do you focus on all of those things simultaneously? Because it's not necessarily where one drug is. It's where they all are. And we know that even tobacco addiction, I mean, in southern West Virginia, we've got 30% of our population still use a tobacco-based product. And now we're even seeing the methodology with vaping coming out and targeting our young people once again. And that doesn't just stop at nicotine. That's, you know, that's other products that can be put into that particular delivery device. I'm wondering about the role of politics, because this is a very conservative area and some anti-smoking measures have been blocked because of that. How does 
Does politics ever interfere with your work in terms of drug addiction? Absolutely. Politics is the ultimate nightmare on, on dealing with these things. I've been a county commissioner now for six years, and, um, you know, I've been on my local board of health. I've been, <laughs> I've been uh, uh, removed from my local board of health because I wanted tougher policies. I wanted greater screening for HIV. I've wanted all these things. But because of politics and because of the way things go, um, sometimes you get outvoted. And when that happens, then you kind of have to back up and punt and figure it out. What's an example of those sort of far-right politics getting in the way? There's a bill in the legislature right now to give control to county commissions over the Board of Health. Now, that makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the commissions, you know, we appoint the Boards of Health. We do not have removal powers. But why would we have direct oversight powers? Because when you're focused on health, that should be your primary concern. It should not be any other logistics. It should not be economics. It should not be anything else other than public health. And when politics gets in the way, that's one of the major driving factors to the detriment of public health. And I see it all the time. Well, this is an overwhelmingly Republican area, but you are a Republican, correct? Yes. But I, I would say that I'm, I'm more of a moderate um, and proudly so. I mean, I think that there's I, I say this all the time, the the. The right isn't always right. The left isn't always wrong. And somewhere in the middle, there's the truth. And we've got to get where that balance is. Because I think that you can look at certain things like good policy, and good policy will drive good economics. Good politics doesn't make good economics. Good politics doesn't make good health. Good politics makes when you do the right thing. And I think that's where we need to be. So you started the work 20 years ago, and you ended up being in a place that was ground zero or very near ground zero for the opioid crisis. Did, did that surprise you or did you see it coming? No, we knew it was coming. We knew from the timeline when the pills came out with OxyContin you know, from Purdue Pharma, we knew it was coming. But we also knew we needed to put all the, the things in place to deal with the situation. And I think over the years, we did an extraordinary job. I mean, we worked with our doctors to say, we don't need overprescribing. We worked with our universities to say, look, you need to have more than a three hour course on prescribing practices. We worked on take back days, working with our DEA in Mercer County and, and every county across the state. We've got drug drop boxes where you can bring your pills in and no questions asked, drop your pills off and they'll be disintegrated. We've done that. But now, because we have an addicted society, we've seen those pills shift over to straight heroin. We've seen the cost of the heroin go up, so people run to the cheap meth. There's, there's this cycle of addiction that you're not going to stop without trying to get these overall measures to where everybody works together to get the right treatment and, you know, continuing prevention. I mean, that's the thing. If you don't do primary prevention at educating people when they're young, you'll never be able to stop that cycle. When you talk to people who are involved in this work elsewhere, what do you learn is specific to Appalachia? What added challenges do you have just because of the geographic locale? In our quality of life, if you just look one county over, I mean, there's a 28-year life expectancy difference between there and Alexandria, Virginia. So, you know, place has everything to do with how you solve a particular problem. And the other thing is when you have place, then you also have that, that um, cultural diversity as well, which poses its own unique challenges. And there are people out there that are probably more interested in what we have going on than how we would learn from others because we are on the front lines. We are you know, learning things as we go. 
What have you learned? What stands out? Well, you've got to look at things from an environmental perspective. And I'm not saying that one individual is not important because, you know, we always say if you can save one, then done your job. But it's opportunity to save a greater culture. Focus on environmental. What do the people see as hindrances in their own lives? Do they have access to food? Do they have access to medical care? Do they have right housing? You've got to look at these things from a very comprehensive environmental approach. And if you start looking at it that way and say, okay, well, these things are not acceptable in my community, then this is how you fix that. You put in good ordinances, you put in you know, good prevention programs. That's the way you fix it. That's the way you change a culture. Mercer County recently set up a quick response team. Can you explain briefly what that is? And is this a big deal? Let's say somebody overdoses in our community. We can identify it through our EMS personnel. Within 72 hours, somebody from our local community mental health center makes that phone call, gets on the phone, says, hey, we understand you had a trauma in your life. Uh, We would like to help you. Let me show you where you can get recovery. Let me show you what we can do. Out of those people that we've been able to contact, it's been about 50% of the people, okay? Of those 50%, anywhere from 30, 40% get in a treatment program right away. That's a huge response to something that can happen to flip the script quickly. The team kicks in when there's an overdose, right? It's not a prevention effort. And this is specifically targeting people that are overdosing in your community, which unfortunately we see a lot of. When those stimulus checks rolled out, the $1,200 checks rolled out back in May because of COVID, the overdoses spiked three times what they were because people had discretionary money in which to go purchase the drugs. Mercer County has trained emergency workers, law enforcement officers, people in the jail system, lots of different folks on how to administer Narcan. What's that moment like when you're asking someone who's just survived an overdose to think about treatment? When somebody comes back from an overdose, they're typically going to be extraordinarily angry and could potentially be hostile in some ways because you've brought them back from a pretty intense high. And so now you're, you're opening up their airways and you're bringing them back to life. I, I think you, you have that moment of lucidity where it's like, I just spent a lot of money on my drugs and I was high and I was dead. I'm back to life. I'm happy. But also, you know, they're not exactly excited. And yet the team swoops in shortly after the overdose. That's a moment of time where you can intervene, where they're more likely to be able to say, I need help. Can you recall a case where there was a positive outcome that because of some of the policies that you promoted, that that person was helped? This one individual, he was in early active recovery. He had gone into a drug court program. He was still wearing an ankle brace and he was playing basketball with me on a court. And, you know, I just, I couldn't stand the guy. (laughs) Could not. As I got to know him and I got to know his situation and I got to know where he was in his life, I started to understand more about how that individual was gradually changing. And now I see that same person actively involved in helping others into recovery, because we know that when you include them into a broad-based environmental approach, that not only does the individual change, but the attitudes and the opportunities for others change as well. So without naming names, I will tell you that this individual has not only changed himself, but also helped me change my 
perspective on how we continually help people as well. You then became more effective and focused on your goal. We as a society have to understand we're not dealing with a, a situation of what we did 30, 40 years ago of looking at somebody and go, oh, that's that person or those people. We're all in this society together. We're changing the we're changing the dynamic on how we term these individuals as well. We're not calling them addicts anymore. We're not calling them derelicts or druggies or anything like that. No, these are people that are suffering from a brain disease. It's It's been proven. We're changing the dynamic of the stigma associated around addiction. And if you do that, what you end up doing is you encourage people through their own abilities to go get help. Some news to note, The Lancet, which is one of the oldest and most widely respected medical journals in the world, has just made news by pointing out that the HIV epidemic in the U.S. has moved from urban settings into rural areas like Appalachia. How does this fit in with addiction? Women who inject drugs are 1.2 times more likely to get HIV since they generally shoot up right after their partner using the same needle. One of the authors of the Lancet articles on this is Dr. Sally Hodder, professor of medicine at West Virginia University. So this is not great news, but we can end on a hopeful note because she does offer concrete solutions, including these three. First, decriminalizing substance abuse. Second, providing clean, safe places for needle exchanges and other interventions. Third, reducing the stigma around substance abuse, something we just heard Greg Puckett talk about. Puckett also recommends the website stigmafreewv.org, so you might want to check that out. That's it for this episode of Render, the Harm Reduction Podcast. You'll find Greg Puckett's email address in the show notes, and thanks to Chris Giles for our music. If you'd like to read the Hillbilly Drug Baby books, they're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just about everywhere else. You'll find more information, including a phone call between me and Jesse Ray on hillbillydrugbaby.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 